Well, good evening, and welcome to the James Montgomery Boyce Lectures. My name is Jeff Brown. I'm Associate Minister in Dallas, Texas at Believer's Chapel, and it's an honor to be with Oklahoma City tonight, especially here at Grace Bible. We appreciate y'all opening up the facility for our use. Uh, I wanted to let you know a little bit before I introduce our speaker, a little bit about the George Whitfield Society, the ministry that has brought Dr. Lil back here tonight. The George Whitfield Society is a nonprofit foundation formed in 1995 by Christian businessmen in the Oklahoma City area. This year, the society celebrates its 25th year of ministry. Ministry is ultimately about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Yet it's named after 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, who lived out his love for Christ. And he lived it out in two ways primarily. First off, George Whitfield was known for his good works, not as a way to earn salvation, but as a way to say, P.S., thanks for that salvation. He did that by supporting those in need. Um, his motto was, he called himself poor, yet making others rich. And it fleshed itself out in founding the Bethesda Orphanage in Savannah, Georgia. He supported it his entire life. He gave money to the poor. He also opened up an almshouse for widows in London. He gave away theology books to church pastors as well as seminary students. And also, the second thing that George was known for, what most people probably know him for, was the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it made him loved among people, not only in Europe, England in particular, but also in the colonies here in the present-day United States. Well, he was loved, as you can imagine, by believers, but hated by many that rejected his message. Just as a short story, one summer evening in 1744, Whitfield was in Plymouth, England, right before one of his preaching trips to America. He received word at the inn he was staying that a man wanted to meet and talk with him. He thought it was happening in the evening, and like Nicodemus, who came to Christ, he thought it might be an interesting theology time. Well, when the man was ushered into Whitfield's room, sure enough, the man sat and he commended Whitfield on his preaching. And then all of a sudden, and without warning, the man jumped up, started cursing Whitfield, and began beating him on the head and shoulders with a golden-headed cane. Whitfield underwent, and I quote, all the fears of a sudden violent death. He cried out for help from which he was soon rescued by others. Well, that's not what we are about at the George Whitfield Society. And yet, like the man, Whitfield, we do seek to do good works and preach the good news. Good works like supporting financially those in need, the poor, widows, orphans, pastors, seminary students, and of course, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and teaching the Bible, both near and far. What does that look like? Well, it looks like supporting missionaries proclaiming the gospel literally around the world. Uh, we have a men's Bible study that happens right here in Oklahoma City on Friday mornings at 6.30. Men, you need to be there. It's an opportunity for you to hear the word preached and uh, taught well, much like it happens here every Sunday. Not only that, but we offer uh, annual conferences free of charge for the public. So we're glad to have you this evening. The James Montgomery Boyce Lectures, what is that about? Well, it's named after our first speaker 25 years ago. Dr. Boyce was a Bible teacher, author, and senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Like Whitfield, Boyce preached the Bible and performed good works 
The church established a school. They helped women with uh, crisis pregnancies, gave the gospel, and then even served homosexual and HIV-positive folks and the homeless. Uh, he believed in teaching the word and living out the word, much the way we seek to do at the Whitfield Society. Tonight, we have the privilege of hearing from our speaker, Dr. Peter Lilbach, president of Westminster Theological Seminary and professor of historical theology and church history. In addition to his positions at Westminster, he is also the president of the Providence Forum. He's a busy man. Dr. Lilbach received his PhD from Westminster, a Master of Theology from Dallas Seminary, and a BA from Cedarville University in Ohio. He has one wife, two daughters, and three grandchildren, in that order. He's the author of the best-selling book, George Washington's Sacred Fire, and several other books listed on the back of the bulletin. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Lilbach as he teaches on climate change and the unchanging word. Uh, it's a great joy to be with you tonight, and I realize as I come to speak to you, I, what are my credentials to speak on the topic of climate change? Well, I like to go to Florida in the winter, so I know where there's warm weather. And uh, I always like to get to Oklahoma City at this time of year because it's always a little nicer here, too, than Philadelphia. But uh, I want you to know as we talk about these things that I consider myself to be an authentic tree hugger. I've taken my grandkids, my children out on nature tours, and we talk about all the different trees and all the beauties of nature. I've hiked the Grand Canyon from side to side and back again. I go on the Appalachian Trail. I've done it three or four times. I've hiked volcanoes and mountains. Would you believe it? On my 65th birthday, I climbed Old Man Peak in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. I went, I was there teaching on the Reformation, so that gives you the year 2017, the 500th anniversary. One of my students uh, was uh, there and he said, come and give us our uh, uh, celebrate, uh, celebration lecture on the Reformation. So if I'm going all the way to northern India, I have to go on a hike. So that's where they brought me. He looked and said, yeah, Old Man Peak is just right for you. So that was perfect for my 65th year. Well, tonight I'm going to be talking about climate change and the unchanging word. Uh, obviously, this issue of climate change comes at us from every possible direction. It's an issue that confronts us. And as believers, as Christian people, we need to look at all things in light of God's Word. God's Word is the source of wisdom and truth. It establishes the worldview that Christians should engage as they look at issues that are coming before them. So tonight I'm wanting us to think about then this idea of what is climate change, what is being said about it, and then how do we view it as believers in the Word of God. Tonight I'm going to be considering uh, six specific items, and I'll share them with you so you, in your mind you say, there's hope he's going to get to the end. You know, when you know the outline, you say, maybe he's going to actually try to land this plane at some point. Okay. So the first one I'm, uh, I'm going to speak about is the culture of climate change. Secondly, inconvenient truths challenging climate change doomsday scenarios. Three, engaging observable realities regarding climate change. Four, how does the Bible help us with this question? And this is redemptive historical theological issues. Fifthly, the Bible's clear answer to the foundational question of climate change can mankind destroy the divine order of nature? 
And then finally, sixthly, a biblical evaluation of climate change claims. It's a lot to cover tonight. I asked uh, Jay, if I go a little bit long tonight, uh, is it okay? And he said, yes, they're here, and if they want to leave, they know how to get out. So you will not offend me if you say, I've had enough, I, I need a change of climate tonight. So off you go, it's all right. But if you decide to stay, uh, I'm going to get to the end, and then we'll open it up for questions. Tonight, I will say again, as we talk about these things, I don't hold myself forth as an expert in this field. I am someone who cares about these issues deeply, and I love the Word of God, and I'll be glad to try to give you my opinion, and certainly I want to clarify anything I've said if it's confusing. Okay, so we will have some time for questions. That means you have to persevere to the end. But I understand this is a, something of a Calvinistic church, so you believe in the perseverance of the saints. So that we'll, we'll get there, right? Okay, so I'm going to follow a manuscript tonight, a little more than I usually do, because when you don't know that you're talking as accurately as you want, you want to say, well, this is what I was trying to say. So I really worked hard to give my manuscript. So forgive me for largely reading it, but it's my intent to be accurate about things that are very concerning to us. So let's begin. Following a long-standing ecclesiastical tradition, the moderator of the Church of Scotland presents a Bible to the new British monarch in the coronation service. When he does, he declares, This book is the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. This reflects the spirit of the translators of the King James Bible. In 1611, they wrote this, God's sacred word is that inestimable treasure that excelleth all the riches of the earth. The worldview found in the Bible that shapes our discussion tonight. So imagine the king is receiving this gift. And the issue that we are thinking about is found right at the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 1. We hear these verses beginning at verse 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So we read these words, we hear, if you will, what our king that we are speaking about was hearing is the inestimable treasure and wisdom of God. Okay, These are the treasures of God. But the biblical word view that was so critical in times past has come upon different circumstances. Indeed, the times have changed. 
The Bible is now scandalized by prevailing worldviews as a source of dangerous notions that are inflicting inestimable damage on the biosphere. Whether secular or Marxist, these perspectives insist that humanity inhabits a godless and an endangered earth. Their ideology dominate the news, politics, and academia with shibboleths such as global warming, climate change, overpopulation, and the evils of fossil fuels. The call of previous Christian generations to save souls has been eclipsed by the mainstream mantra of save the planet. We encounter unrelenting declarations of the looming extinction of life due to catastrophic global warming and the inundation of earth by rising seas. The prophets of climate change pronounce the inevitable death of the planet unless immediate radical global action is taken, although for some it's already too late. These views are reinforced by legislators and academics by attempting to curtail free speech by the imposition of what have been called safe zones, protecting progressives from themes inconsistent with their ideology. Christian teachings are banished from such, and historic biblical beliefs are condemned as hate speech, beliefs in a sovereign creator and his grant of a privileged planet to be ruled by humans are repudiated. Post-Western culture is now avowedly an anti-Christian culture. These words, then, we want to try to describe what I'm calling the culture of climate change, our first point. Contemporary culture is engulfed by concepts of climate change. Rising oceans have brought a rising tide of dire warnings of an impending apocalyptic climate tsunami resulting in the destruction of life. Global warming claims were given widespread respectability by Al Gore's 2006 Academy Awards winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. The message of global doom has led through the years to the recent celebration of teenager Greta Thunberg as the spokesperson for climate change. Some of her famous declarations are worthy of citing tonight. She said, I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic and act as if the house was on fire. She said, you say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Further, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? If you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil. She says, for more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you to continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. Wow. Thunberg was selected as Time Magazine's 2019 Person of the Year following her condemnation of the global older generations at the United Nations who she claims have stolen her childhood through indifference and inactivity regarding the approaching cosmic doom of climate change. Reports appear of children unable to sleep due to fearful nightmares about the climate change 
Uh, we hear news reports of teenagers screaming in anger and terror at climate change rallies, their cries aimed at the corrupt capitalist business and energy systems, systems run by older people. Jeff Bezos, you know him as the founder of Amazon, has apparently heard these cries and has just committed $10 billion with a B to address and fight climate change. If we think we've heard a lot now, imagine what's coming with that kind of resources behind it. Politically, in this culture of climate change, Americans are confronted with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's prognostication of the final decade of life on Earth, unless the Green New Deal is enacted. Climate deniers are scolded and scorned by the insistence that all scientists hold that global warming, or at least climate change, is an indisputed fact that imperils the habitability of the earth. Exxon may have escaped for the moment in the court its culpability in climate catastrophes, but it is certain in the minds of these that the Trump administration standing out of the Paris Climate Accords has only accelerated the certain doom of life on earth. Emanating from this perspective, There are increasing demands to end fracking, claiming it is destroying the environment. Pipelines that advance North American reserves of natural gas and oil are resisted and claim to pollute the environment. It doesn't matter that these energy developments are consciously constructed with concerns for environmental safety. The geopolitical significance of their creation is ignored. Such new production and distribution have made the U.S. For the first time in decades, a net energy exporter, thereby vastly diminishing the influence of Russia over Europe. Moreover, it has dried up Western petrodollars previously harnessed for terrorist activities by groups that perpetrate violence from bases operated throughout the Middle East. Well, that's a statement I've made without doing any scholarly research. That's just when I said, what have I heard? That's what I'm hearing. That's what we're all hearing. We are being conditioned at every moment to say we are in the dead-end planet of the earth and we are getting ready to die. And you better do something right now. So that brings me to my second point tonight. Picking up on the words of the inconvenient truth of Al Gore, I'm calling it the inconvenient truths challenging climate change doomsday scenarios. Again, just some observations that we should take seriously. There are, however, inconvenient truths that challenge cultural prophets who assert the demise of life by global warming and climate change. To begin, let's recognize that prophecy for mere mortals is an inexact science. To predict the future with absolute certainty is impossible for any mere mortal. And it's actually seen in the fact that long ago we passed the year 2014. That was a year anticipated by Al Gore when all the ice caps would melt. Well, they've not melted. They're freezing more than ever right now. In fact, in the very year he predicted it, it was one of the coldest years on record. But we've all heard that the Arctic is melting and the polar bears are dying. I've seen specials about how the polar bears are endangered. Well, the most recent count so that we've never had more polar bears ever counted in history. And we see the ice caps freezing. 
In fact, Glacier National Park that had several signs up saying, the glaciers, you better come see them because they're going to be gone in five years. Well, guess what? They've had to take those signs down because the glaciers are growing in Glacier National Park. This is raising some interesting questions. The certainty of prognostication is not quite so reliable. Perhaps the prophets of doomsday things ought to remember that only one who is omniscient can predict the future. A global warming advocate explains the imprecision of climate change, and I think it's an interesting analogy. It's like walking a dog. Have you ever walked a dog on a leash and it's one who's not learned to heal? You know, they're all over, back and forth, fluctuation. And this particular teacher said, well, that's what the weather does. It's back and forth. You're going to have all kinds of fluctuation. But the climate is the man walking the dog. He is leading it, and that's the climate. And that's what we have to watch, because that is what's determining radical climate change and warning. But the question is, how do we know which direction this so-called climate change walking of a dog is going? We have no idea. What if he decides to turn a corner to the left instead of to the right, or decides to stay straight? There's no way to know these things. Eventually, the necessity arose to address the failures of the prophecies of global warming. It was something that uh, was beginning to be an embarrassment because of record-breaking cold and freezing and snow. And so we lost that word some years ago, and it's now climate change. Global warming was the theory, but it's not fit, the facts. So climate change. But what is interesting is that only 50 years ago, you could go on the cover of Time magazine And they said the climate is moving toward a new ice age. Well, what's happened in 50 years? It's a a new heating. Well, the point is, who disagrees that climates change? Of course they do. And so we must get at what is the theory behind it? What are they seeking to accomplish by their words? And so as being one from northern Ohio, uh, yeah, I still root for the Indians and the Cleveland Browns sometimes, I picked up a lot of love for Philadelphia after all these years, so, but we won't talk sports tonight. But I do remember growing up in northern Ohio, right by Lake Erie. There were what were called glacial grooves, rocks that were carved by the glaciers coming through. They're called lateral and terminal moraines. This is all of this land and rock that's been pushed by glaciers that made all these big... I lived on Johnny Cake Ridge, which was a big uh, terminal moraine of the glacier that when it melted, it created Lake Erie. This is all the stone and soil that it pushed forward. And you know, where I grew up, there used to be a mile of ice over where my house was. Can you think of that? A mile of ice. And it's all melted. And you know, none of that had anything to do with the Industrial Revolution. This was a natural process, that it melted a mile of solid ice, creating what we call today the Great Lakes. Climate change is an absolute reality. Global warming, whatever it may or may not be, has clearly been going on since the last ice age. It's a fact. And we as human beings had nothing to do with it. But something happened before that that created all those ice sheets and glaciers. This is called natural processes that have nothing to do with human activity. The point is that global warming has been a steady reality for centuries long preceding the Industrial Revolution. Yet amid that long stretch of global warming, there have also been substantial episodes of many ice ages, such as the one during the 1600s to 1800s. 
Have you ever wondered why the Stradivarius violins are so magnificent? It's because the trees that made the wood out of which Stradivarius worked were, were grown during a mini ice age, and they were much harder. That gives them a far greater tone. Did you know that there was a time when there was a traveling route in Europe that went north of Europe to Russia? And then it froze over and no one could take that route anymore. Do you remember that Washington almost couldn't cross over to his surprise attack in Trenton, New Jersey, because the Delaware River had almost frozen in such big chunks that it wasn't solid yet, they couldn't get over. Only Washington of his three invasion teams could, were able to make it across. That was because it was in the middle of a mini ice age. Fluctuations are inevitable and are inescapable in this world. So a significant fact then that we must realize is that the warming that we see on the earth is something that's measured even on the planets in our solar system. The temperature on Mars has been steadily increasing for the last several decades. We can measure it. And again, it had nothing to do with fossil fuels on the earth. It's way too far away to make that difference. It has everything to do with solar energy and the cycles that the sun is going through. Did you know that they've just uncovered now with scientific uh, measurements that there seems to be what they're identifying as a 400-year cycle in the sun that has a way of heating and cooling over centuries because of the nuclear processes that are at the heart of the sun? Now, I'm only reading popular articles to give you these points. But the, the issue is, here are some of the salient facts that we need to keep in mind. One, predictions of destructive climate change thus far have proven inaccurate. Two, empirical science cannot fully answer the question of global climate patterns. First, there's not enough evidence that have been observed over enough centuries to establish it. And Earth history cannot be repeated and measured. So like all historical interpretation, it is impacted by the values and beliefs of the one who is interpreting we cannot fully account for non-repeatable events from past Earth history. We don't know the full impact of such things as the cataclysms of asteroid strikes or a universal flood, etc. All of these things are beyond our ability to fully appreciate. So there's many other things I could say, but if you'd like to look at some sources of good information to give you a counter-narrative, I would recommend two online sources where there's a lot of great, simple, clear information. Number one, I don't know if you've ever gone to the Prager University online. They're fabulous five-minute testimonials by world-leading experts on issues like climate change and global warming. They're people that have massive degree education dealing with the issue and explaining how it's utterly impossible to make the predictions we have today. The uh, algorithms that are being used are being put in with numbers that are just chosen at random to get a result. It's not anything anyone can predict. Another source you might want to look at is a, a man by the name of Cal Beisner. Cal Beisner has been working with an organization uh, that is uh, very helpful in this area, and his work is called the Cornwall Alliance. Now, these two groups are utterly vilified by those that are trying to push the agenda that I've been describing tonight. I am asking you to look at them for your own edification, decide do they have authentic evidence. But what I can tell you, whatever you think about what I've said tonight, 
The politics of global warming is an ever-present force and it is interpreting the data not by science alone, but by politics. It is a political debate. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but politicians are known for stretching the truth. And that is a very much of a euphemism. You know what a euphemism is? It's saying something nice when you could say something ugly. They don't just stretch the truth. They like to tell you bald-faced lies that serve their purpose. And that's true of just a lot of politicians. We are being politically shaped and not scientifically educated. So now, with, with this, let me begin to go thirdly to my third point. Thus far, I've not gone into the Bible. I've said the Bible's being attacked. Here's what people are saying. I've given some counter-narratives. And then I want to take seriously some of the issues that I have observed and give some responses, and then we'll get to look at some of the biblical data. The third thing then, engaging observable realities in favor of climate change. I don't want to deny any of the evidence. Whatever a climate change denier is, it must mean someone who says, I'll pretend that doesn't exist. I don't want to be that. I want to look at the hard data and say, what do we see? And then begin to ask, what does it mean? I think that's what an intelligent person does. You're trying to be faithful to the, what does the Bible teach? What are we observing in the world? What are the facts? What are the best explanations? So let me begin by saying there's no doubt that there are rising oceans. Uh, I have been in the Netherlands, and did you know the Netherlands, they've reclaimed a lot of land from the sea through their dike system, and they are preparing to build stronger and bigger dikes because they're watching the rising seas, which means it's going to reclaim their land. This is an issue. In fact, it's such an issue that one of my theological friends has said that they are requiring the reduction of the maximum speed in the Netherlands by 20 kilometers an hour slower so they'll burn less fuel because they don't want to be a cause of the rising seas that will take their land. One of my friends said, maybe it's too late. The Netherlands may not be able to stop the rising seas. So that raises the question, what about the lowlands all along the United States, like New York City or the state of Florida? The evidence of warming. There is a warming ocean trend that we can actually see. It was fascinating. I didn't get to this part of the mountains of the Himalayas when I was there, but the source of the Ganges River was marked at the year 1900, where the glacier had reached, and that's the melting glacier that creates this holy river for the Hindu religion. Well, today, if you go there, there's maybe 200 or 300 yards farther away that the glacier has melted. The glaciers have melted uh, many, many yards over the last century. There's warming. It's absolutely true. We cannot deny it. There are rising seas. There are, mil- there are places where the glaciers are melting. And yes, there are cities that are running out of water, like Cape Town in South Africa and Chennai, India. Is the earth drying up? The Great Barrier Reef, we have to take it seriously. I've gone fishing at the Great Barrier Reef and caught fish this big with a hand line. I love the out-of-doors. But we're, we're watching, the little by little, the dying of the Great Barrier Reef. And that has something to do with the rising of the oceans. These are facts. We cannot run from them. There have been massive fires we've heard about in large swaths of California and Australia. These are huge issues, burning up in animal environments and natural orders. And we know that pollution is a huge reality. 
uh, the concern for the polluting of the air and the polluting of the seas and of the land. Now, the primary polluters are, prim- are especially China, India, and Indonesia. But these are facts. So tonight, as I talk about this stage and get ready to talk about what the scriptures say, we are not here to suppress any of this data. So how do we think about that as we get ready to go further in our discussion? First of all, let us go back to my one of my opening points. The solar system is, in fact, warming. The sun is hotter than it used to be. And the sun is not something that human beings control. We are Our star is getting hotter. And this is a cycle that may or may not repeat, but it is a fact, and so that means that the temperature that we're receiving is making a difference in all aspects of life. The oceans get hotter. The glaciers have been melting for 10,000 plus years to, So they're in, in Ohio. Some places they're growing, other places they're retreating. <clears throat> so we need to recognize, think about this, that once there was a land bridge between Russia and Alaska, not in any known history, but the seas have risen that much that that land bridge is now submerged. There were those islands that connected. They're now all underwater. The Great Barrier Reef decline is a concern, but did you know this is not the first time the Great Reefs have died because of rising oceans? Uh, There are reef islands that you can go to. I've been on some in Indonesia. There are coral islands that are much higher than the the ocean. It meant the oceans were once much higher at part of the earth than they are today, which argues that there's been huge fluctuations over the centuries over the millennia of the sea. The California fires and Australia fires are severe, and yes, human beings have had something to do with it. The electric company in California said, there are fires that have been started because we did not design our electric lines to keep from sparking. We've caused those fires through our electric lines. Electricity is fine for the environment, but if they didn't do it right, that's part of the damage. In Australia, they said, you know what, there are always major fires, but what we have failed to do now as Australians is follow the classic aboriginal process of regularly burning the underbrush. The ancient wisdom was you have to clear it out because the fires will destroy you if you don't. Well, in our hubris as modern people said, we don't have to do that. Guess what? We're killing ourselves because of our not using ancient wisdom. It's not because of what we're doing. It's what we're not doing, what should have been done. Globally, do you realize that there are submerged ancient coastal cities all around the Mediterranean and other places in Japan that are some 200 to 300 feet underwater? That means that there once the ocean went so far back and out that cities that were on the coastal edge are now 200 feet. That means the ocean has gone up that high in human history. Ocean rising is not something new, starting after the Industrial Revolution. There are ancient archaeological sites. Right off of the coast of uh, India, they found a major city that's, uh, you know, like about five miles out into the ocean and about 200 feet down. Once an ancient, beautiful city. Perhaps this is the source of those discussions of the lost Atlantis. I'm not here to tell you where it is, and I'm not going to make any predictions about it. But the fact that there are submerged cities is a archaeological fact. Human cities submerged. Polar caps 
uh, are, as we've talked about, are going to be impacted by the sun. The water shortages that I mentioned, they're real. But you know why they're there? It's because of human mismanagement. South Africa's big city of Cape Town almost ran out of water because since the changeover in government, they've done nothing with water. And they almost drowned in the death of their city in dryness because they didn't take care of all the management of water through the years. And now they're addressing that. Well, there's so much more I could say, and because I'm not wanting to be pretending to be an expert, I'll drop, drop many of the things I could do. But let me move on then to my fourth point. So how does the Bible help us as we talk about these things? I've tried to lay out just the layman's understanding of the issues, some of the realities, some of the challenges and explanations. But what does the Bible tell us? Well, first of all, the question that we're trying to address here is can human beings ultimately destroy our planet? Can we ultimately destroy the means of life so that we cannot live? And if we can do it, is it likely that we will? Well, the first way to begin with the biblical response is to look at the Bible's own story and tells us how we got here. So to begin our biblical response, we want to think about what God's Word says about creation, the fall of man, the curse, and the flood. These are these basic truths that describe ancient earth history according to a Christian worldview. We've already noted that creation established a paradise on earth. It was very good. And in that context, God gave us what is called the creation mandate. That's what we read when we started, that we are to have dominion over the earth. We are to rule over it, that we are to have families, that we are to manage all the things that God has created. Our very breath, life itself, is because God has breathed it into us. And then we discovered that when God created this world in Genesis 2, verses 8 through 15, that God gave us, if you will, the vast natural resources of the earth. Remember how it describes that there's not only the trees and food in Eden, but there were rivers that were flowing that provided water. There was gold. There are natural resources that are there. And God put man into the garden to work it. Agriculture was part of his work. So there was an original climate that's very different from what we know today. Christians believe in climate change. The perfection of creation no longer exists. We do not have a garden that produces all that we need. We are in a world that there's the sweat of the brow. And of course, that brings us to the truth of the radical results of human sin. When sin came into the world, the initially perfect climate was changed. Remember that verse that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. That not only talks about their moral purity, it talks about the perfection of the climate. They needed no clothing. There was no hostile environment. We wear clothes not only because of our concerns for modesty and safety, but because you got to put on a coat to keep warm or you have to have enough breathability so you don't sweat too much. We are not in a perfect environment. There's been climate change from the beginning. And after the fall, there was a curse placed upon the earth. You know those words in Genesis 3. It says, because you've listened to the voice of uh, your wife and you've been tempted by the serpent, you are going to see thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. 
The climate was radically changed. The environment was broken. A curse fell upon the earth. And what we realize is that yet in the middle of that curse, there's always this hope that's put forward. It's the beginning of what we can call common grace. God did not utterly destroy man, so there was no hope for life. Instead, God put into the nature many elements, even in this time of the greatest curse of the fall. Notice what it says. There's a time when the serpent's head will be bruised in Genesis 3, that you will still bring forth children. You will eat, even though it's going to be difficult. You shall eat the plants of the field. And the Lord even provided clothing for them that they might live, the garments that not only meant there needed to be a sacrifice for life, but also provision for the environment. So in the curse after the fall, we realize the curse only intensified. In Abel's uh, uh, death by his brother Cain in Genesis 4, we're told that the earth cries out because of the assault that he has against his brother. Cursed was the land against Cain. And then we're told that the curse was so great that finally the Lord said, I'm going to destroy the entire earth. You know how Noah comes onto the scene. And there's to be a catastrophic cosmic upheaval. And again, another climate change. That climate change that destroys human wickedness is something that takes out the curse that was placed upon the earth. And a new beginning comes. Now, as you look at that story, we can see that there's all sorts of climate change. A paradise, a paradise that's lost. That lost world has a curse placed upon it. And it even gets worse with greater struggle. And yet common grace sustains life through it until finally the curse is utterly eradicated by a whole new beginning, a global destruction of the planet and of life, and we might say a second creation account, a creation account among fallen human beings. Mankind is fallen. Sin is in our hearts. Uh, we'll read in Genesis 6-5 that human wickedness is such that man's thoughts and his hearts are only evil continually. And after the Lord destroys this earth, a new beginning is with Noah. Noah's like a new Adam. There's a covenant with Noah, and this is where we come on our scene of our discussion of climate. Biblically, climate change is a reality. It's gotten worse, it's changed, and there's been a new beginning. And it's in the promises that God makes with Noah that we find that he establishes a covenant with creation. Creation itself, which God has made, is now given a covenant stability. God promises human good under his providential care. There are going to be blessings as we read them in the story of Noah in Genesis 8 and following. It says the post-fall curse on the ground is now softened. What Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel dealt with, that has been removed. There's a much more fruitful world than what was known. The universal destruction of the flood is removed as a repeatable possibility. God will never destroy the world again by a universal flood. Divine establishment of the cycles of nature are established. It says that there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat. God establishes, if you will, the norm of cycles, of the patterns of life. And this common grace is such that, that we read that fallen mankind will be assured of crop production and a stable climate. Reading, for example, in Genesis 8, 21, 
The Lord has said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so the specification of the divine promise is in fact climate stability. In verse 22 of Genesis 8, it says, While the earth remains, so that means as long as there's an earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, This is the Noahic covenant with nature given to mankind after the destruction of the earth when the past climate is destroyed and a new one is established. And God gave us a sign to tell us that this is the case. We need to reclaim the meaning of the rainbow. What does the rainbow mean today? It's the sign of the LGBTQ movement. That's not what its meaning is. That is a theft of a sign that is a God-given empirical manifestation of God's special revelation. God said, when you see that sign, realize that the earth will remain. That the earth will have seed time and harvest. There will be cold and there will be heat. God is sustaining the world because the past curse has been softened, not totally removed, but it is a world that now has God's blessing upon it. When I go hiking and I hug my trees and I go out and enjoy nature, and when it's raining really hard and a rainbow comes out, I always stop and worship. I look at that rainbow and say, Lord, thank you. You're still talking to us. You've told us that this world is yours. This is my father's world. It's in his care. Every time you hear the dire prediction of the doomsday scenario, you need to remember the story of Noah. Think of the rainbow. And says, God is saying in this sacramental sign of nature, his covenant with nature, the world will remain. Seed time and harvest will not disappear. Cold and heat will come in its cycles. Of course, there are variations. We are still in a fallen world. There still is difficulty. But this permanence that we have is, in fact, climate stability. And that is what the rainbow promises. That's the Noahic covenant. Now, the divine blessing on reproduction and cultural growth with provision and promise for food and moral government is all woven into the aftermath. When you go to Genesis 9, there's provisions for the continuation of life. We read again in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, the language we heard in creation. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image and you. Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And these words the Lord is saying, you have sufficient food to live and now you have sufficient authority to preserve society against the assault of those that would harm you. The idea of the use of the sword for uh, security, the idea of capital punishment in the case of evil. 
These are provisions for the continuation of life. Noah gives us the beginning of human civilization built upon the promise that our climate will be stable and life will be sustainable and we can reproduce. But the post-flood revelation even strengthens these things. We just don't stop with Noah. When we continue to read our Bible, we discover that the post-flood divine reaffirmations of common grace are intensified with additional promises. What God said to Noah are made even more secure. Think of Psalm 104 and verse 9. You set a boundary that they, the waters of the sea, may not pass, so they might not again cover the earth. Now look at they're going to be rising and shrinking seas, but they're never going to cover the earth. Now the coastlines are always at risk. There are buried cities. And if you build too close to the ocean and you're going to be there for the next 500 years, you might have your condo underwater. That means you might want to have a house somewhere in the mountains too. But the earth is secure. The Lord has set a boundary over which the seas cannot go farther. He tells us that the sea and the rain and the seasons are absolutely secure in his plan. Jeremiah 5, to 24. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. People become blind to God's great blessings of this Noahic establishment. But the Lord tells us the rain and the seasons will come in their time, and the sea has a limit. But what is most extraordinary is how the Lord now in these providential intensifications of his promise to Noah says that salvation itself is connected with his covenant with nature. For those of us that are Christians, this is the greatest guarantee we can imagine. Listen to this. Israel's permanence is guaranteed by God's fixed preservation of the cosmos. The perpetuity of God's people as the birth line of the Messiah is immutably linked to the fixity of God's order in nature. The heavens and the earth will pass away before God's promise to bring a Messiah through the Jewish people will end. The fact that you can go out and see the world and the sun and the moon and the seasons is a reminder that God's promise of salvation is secure. Let's listen to a couple prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. Basically what these verses are saying is the fixed order of the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, the immeasurable space and earth's geological depths assure Israel's offsprings will continue. Here's how the verses go. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He said, I'm going to let the world end before I'm going to let my promised messianic line end. We have a Messiah, that means we have a world. They are inseparably connected. Further, God's natural covenant with the appointed times of the cycle of day and night 
and the fixed order of the heavens guarantee that a descendant of David will be on his throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We can read in Jeremiah 33, 19 and following, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so they shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and the covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of the heavens cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the priests who minister to me. If I have not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. The Bible says, If we don't have a secure earth, we don't have a savior. They're inseparably connected. That would be enough for us to say, wait a second, this doomsday scenario, throw Christianity out if it's true. If this is true, your gospel is a lie. Do you understand that? This is not just some old myth about Noah in the past. The Bible says if this world ends, Christ is a liar. That's how serious it is. You know, those are fighting words. He's saying, I am not a man most miserable. Jesus Christ has come. He's been raised again. I have life in him. The gospel is true. I'm to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. It is secure in him. We can go on. There's so much more here. But we even see that God has a covenant that extends to the animals. Okay, well, the the, the flood ark rescued the animals as well. And the, God not only made a covenant with Noah, with the rainbow, and the covenant with uh, the, uh, the sun and the moon, but even with the animals. Read Hosea chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. He says, I've even made a covenant with the animals to secure them. We're, tell, we're told that all the animals are going to go extinct. No, the Lord's made a covenant with them too. The only way you can believe this narrative that we are going to see the death of life is to say the Bible is utterly false and Christ is not the Messiah. Christianity believes in climate change. The Bible portrays it. But it also believes in the climate change that there is a stability, even in this cursed world, that maintains the hope of salvation and the certainty of life. The Bible's clear answer then, fifthly, To the foundational question of climate change debate, can man destroy the divinely established order of nature? God says he will never do it. Do you think God is going to allow us to do it if he's not going to do it? We basically have to say God is no longer sovereign, that God is no longer a God of providence, that God is no longer able to care for what he has determined. And that is why I say we must recover the uh, wonderful meaning of the rainbow. The rainbow is the promise that in the midst of all the different ways that there's earth history, the ways in which climate may change, there's a foundational stability that will persevere as long as the earth remains until the Lord completes his work. And so I put together what I'm calling 12 biblical considerations why global warming or climate change will not end human life as taught by climate change prognosticators. These are arguments that you can readily identify, but think about their logic. Number one, God is sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He has promised. He can sustain his promise. Two, he has a plan that will be fully realized and effectual. He is a God of providence and preservation. 
He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's not only about your salvation, that's about his entire plan that he's working us through. Thirdly, the seas will not create a global flood again of the land. That's the foundational principle that's built into the story of the flood and the, and the ark and the sky, the rainbow. Fourthly, God has made a covenant with the seed of Abraham, his elect, and with the cosmos itself. He will not break his covenant. God will not go back on his word. His promises are irrevocable. Fifthly, these promises of divine preservation of nature for man's good are reiterated in numerous biblical texts. I have, a, in my notes, I have about six pages of assembled promises where I just keep building. I can't give them all to you tonight. I wish I could, just to read them one after another and say, if you're reading your Bible, you can't believe this stuff. The world is not going to end. God is preserving it. He has a plan and a purpose. It is secure. God is sixthly, the creator and preserver. His providential preservation is designed to bring good gifts to man, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. God is the unchangeable promiser that does good for his people, even his fallen people. He will secure it. <clears throat> Seventh, his prophecy of end times is certain, his eschatology. It's not clear for us how it all works out, but we know at the end Jesus comes and Jesus wins. And his promise of the end times proclaims that a people will be alive and nations will act when he returns. We will not be gone. We will be here. Further eighth, we can continue on with uh, the Son of Man will come to be glorified and feared by all the humans and nations alive. While much is unclear and unknowable, much is clear and noble. People will still be here, so there will be no population annihilation. At the second advent, there will be a change of the living and the resurrection of the dead. There will be living people. There will be suffering and plenty then, just like now as it was in the days of Noah, there are all sorts of problems in this world, and they will continue to the end. Nations will still be here throughout history. Nations rise against nation, and there will be wars and rumors of war, but the end will not be yet. There is going to be the continued cycle then of sorrows, of war, rumors of war, famine, earthquakes, pestilence, drought, whirlwinds, etc. They will continue in this fallen world until God determines to end it at his time, at his eschatological purpose, completion. Further, we read, Tenthly, he will spare his people amidst final eschatological judgment, and thus by special grace and common grace, humanity will be redeemed that are belong to the Lord. And then finally, as we look to the end, the curse is a cosmic reality that will be with us until the end when it will be fully removed. Some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible are in Romans 8, 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as the sons and of God, the redemption of our bodies. The point is, is that creation is filled with 
struggle. It's a fallen world. But it will be glorified when God completes His purpose. When we are redeemed, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and people will be here to the very end. And then lastly, Revelation 4.11, In the future, creation will again fully delight the Creator. That verse says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And even now the creation manifests His glory and goodness. Well, as we conclude then, our last point are some practical thoughts to take. What I've said tonight is we are inundated, pun intended, by climate change hysteria. There are many falsehoods that are being taught that do not measure up. There are many realities we have to take seriously. We have to recognize, however, the Bible has assured us by God's plan that there have been climate changes that have come and gone, that God has established a stability that will last to the end of human history, that he promises it with a sign that we see in the sky, and it is Uh, irrevocably tied to the cross of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. The cross and the stability of the world are united in God's plan. We can't be creation, excuse me, climate change alarmists. We should be climate change students and be responsible citizens, just like Christians are to be in all things, wise. Okay. So what are some of the things we need to realize? Well, let's then, first of all, follow some biblical principles as we look at the climate change issue. Number one, let us avoid the idolatry of nature. Nature is not God. Nature is under God. And that's what the rainbow reminds us. Nature is a beautiful gift from the Lord. But we don't worship nature. We worship the Creator. That's the first problem, that we have a nature God that we are worshiping in the secular arguments. Secondly, a proper understanding of divine providence recognizes both natural causes as secondary causes, but God's ultimate governance. Yes, we do things, and our responsibility is great, and we should not misuse our power and our ability to pollute or damage or harm what God has given us. We're to care for it and keep it like Adam did. But we must remember that God's ultimate providence governs all things. Thirdly, the autonomous human reason that is, that mind of man that makes up what he thinks is true, it is always false because it does not have the wisdom of God. I'm not saying that natural man can't do science. Of course they can. But when they begin to explain things that are greater than science, they are bringing their worldview to bear, and they do not have the wisdom of God. They are bringing their misunderstanding, their limited perspective. It's kind of like a blind man trying to explain the world to a seeing man. We see things that a blind man cannot see. Because we have divine revelation. The natural man finds these things foolishness. To us, we have the mind of the Lord. His word gives us wisdom. Believers have God's promises. Rest upon them. Yes, there may be catastrophic events. I don't know what eschatological harbingers God might give. There could be an asteroid strike. There could be a tragic event where human beings uh, use nuclear energy to harm many people on the planet. We're not denying that. Pollution could get bad and harm civilizations. But God will see to it that we are here because that is his plan. And what we should do then are be responsible to make sure that pollution does not get out of the way, that we're responsible with the power and the energy that God has given us. We should be concerned about our environment while we don't worship it or be afraid of it. We recognize that it's under God and we serve with God as his co-laborers in this great creation. Alternate energy is not a bad thing. It's good to pursue it. 
But let's be honest, it can't do what fossil fuels do. It's never enough. We need both, not one or the other. Believers should be committed to using less energy if possible. Why waste it? Let's be good stewards because it costs money. Why pollute the energy of, of, with more use than we need? And let's be honest about this. The Green New Deal is a raw deal. I'll be very blunt about it. It's an economic impossibility. It cannot possibly work. We need to have a creation green that's real. We believe in the green of creation. God made things green and beautiful. We love them and we praise our creator. And we should work with them just like Adam did. He cared for the garden. We are to care for what God has given us. And so good environmental practices are at work. So what is the worldview that we're being bombarded with? What's motivating all of this? Let's get to the core of it. If there is no God, there is only the chaos of the cosmos, no inherent order or destiny. And that means that man has to care for himself and it leads to panic and fear. But if you have a sovereign God in the universe... Panic makes no sense. Fear is irrelevant. Instead, we say, I must be responsible, but I'm safe in the hands of sovereign rule and providential care and the promises of God. No wonder they're panicking, because they're God, and they're lousy gods. They're weak, and they know they can't care for it. But we have the promises of God, and we should boldly be good stewards of what God has given us. We must determine which is final reality. Is it the chaos of the cosmos or the covenant of the creator with his creation? They believe the world is just made up of time and chance and chaos, and they have to make order out of it. We recognize a design creator, a sustainer, and we worship him and work under his law, and we make a difference for good. Therefore, mankind only has government if there is no God. In an atheistic worldview, human government becomes God in the form of statism that leads to the loss of freedom as the government exercises more and more control. And without wanting to be a conspiratorial theorist, I think that's one of the leading forces what's here, is to make us so afraid that we're willing to give up our freedoms to have a central authority that tells us everything we need to do. Christians are for freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Uh, we are those who are to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has given us. And what we're seeing is the panic that's being created by the lack of knowledge in the world. They're making people say, do anything. We hear little Greta saying, you guys, here, take my freedom, do it, or just don't let me die. We need to say this is all falsehoods. Yes, we must be responsible. We're not giving away our freedom. Let's use it wisely to be good stewards. But you see, with there's no God, government becomes God. And that government wants to be utterly sovereign and control you in all of your ways. So this is the emerging choice being placed before us in the coming generations. Will we have the God of government or will we have the God of grace? And for those of us that are Christians, we need to have the courage to maintain the biblical truths that we've talked about tonight. I need to finish, and there's so many more I can say. Like I said, I've already gone an hour, so I'm, I should stop. I do need to land my plane. And so let me land it with reading this. Okay. I think it's time for Christians who know the sovereign God to reject what I'm going to call chicken little theology. Okay, Chicken little theology, what is it? The sky is falling and the oceans are rising. 
Okay, let's hear it. Chicken Little is a folktale that has roots that go back for some two and a half millennia. It is a morality tale about a chicken who believes the world is coming to an end. The phrase, the sky is falling, is the heart of the story. The fable is a metaphor for the hysterical belief that disaster is imminent. Chicken Little believes the sky is falling when an acorn falls on its head. He decides to tell the king and on the journey to the throne meets other animals which he persuades to join his quest. So his movement escalates as the inconvenient truth of the falling sky engages Henny Penny and Cocky Locky and Ducky Lucky and Drakey Lakey and Goosey Lucy and Gander Lander and Turkey Lurkey and of course Foxy Loxy. It's a great name for their congressional leaders there. Sly Foxy Loxy invites them to his lair and eats them all. The moral to be learned is clear. The gullible birds are eaten by the fox, and similarly disaster will fall to others who believe everything one is told. So what does Chicken Little say to us today? The seas are rising. You know, he's right. An acorn did fall on our head. But we're making that acorn into the end of the world. It's a part of the cycle. How do we interpret it? The seas are rising. He is right, for this is the acorn that has fallen on our heads. But he is right. But is he right to be terrified about the imminent disaster of the end of life? Rather, let us fear that the sly fox of massive government overreach and control will end up devouring our freedoms as we've allowed a cyclical event of natural order drive us to hysteria and to the foolish end of freedom. Let us be responsible citizens. But as those with firm confidence in the promises of our Creator, let us engage this phase of His vast cycle of climate under sovereign control with confidence and joy. We are privileged people living in a privileged planet under the care of providence, and we are to be wise stewards, but not fearful people panicking for the end of the world. We are secure in the hands of Almighty God. Okay, I'd like to take some questions from you tonight, if you'd like. Do you have a microphone? Okay. No questions. I, I went over time, so I stole all your question time. Uh, I, I like really what you said. It was very full, uh, but really balanced. So would you say uh, for a believer, yes, we would hold to climate change and climate stability. Is that, is that fair? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, we want to say, we clearly believe that the climate has changed. The Bible reveals that such is the case. And we can see all sorts of evidence. I, I like, I just say, what, what happened to the mile of ice over Painesville, Ohio, my birth town? It melted. Something happened. There's been, a, and that, that, that's part of it. On the other hand, there's climate stability. It's not the radical ending of the life cycle of what we know. And we are responsible then to live in that as godly people, not abusing what God has given us, but to using it well. Okay. Do you have any uh, books or, or magazines? Uh, you said Cal Beisner, who's a fine person. Do you have any books or other references you'd recommend? Uh, I, at this point, I, I have not written anything on this at all. This is the first venture in this area. And if I have dared to do it, it's because I respect so much the George Whitfield Society that said, have the courage to do this. So here I am. I'm, I'm venturing into territory that is not my expertise, but something I care about. 
I, I think a good place to start, I've mentioned those are two good beginnings. Uh, one is uh, the Prager University. I think I, I just was with uh, David Prager, which is the son of Dennis Prager, just a couple nights ago. And he said they have over 3 billion views of their programs, especially loved by young people. They're very, very effective. And if you go online and look and just put in climate change, you'll find some of the leading experts in America talking about this, whose credentials are utterly impeccable, saying that this is hysteria. There's no basis for this. That it would be an excellent source. Cal Beisner has done this work with the Cornwall Alliance, and uh, he's a very fine Reformed theologian. I respect him. I know him a little bit. And uh, I would say he has a lot of work. Now, you'll find he's attacked because they say, well, he's just a pawn in the big energy companies and that sort of thing. But if you set aside all the propaganda and debate and you look at what they say, those are two good sources to start. But tonight, what I would hope you to do is really to go back to those great words that uh, Jesus said, man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God which is, we ought to be Bible readers, and if the Bible gives us a different message, we don't need all these other authorities. We should say, well, what does this mean? And the Bible gives us an assurance as believers. Okay. Is this on? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to know, you said we should reclaim the rainbow, and how would you do that practically? see a rainbow in nature, which isn't all the time, but when you do, to, to be able to say, let's remember that God is saying to us, the world will remain, that there'll be seed time and harvest, and that heat and cool are all part of his plan, and that someday the rainbow is pointing to the final recreation of the entire world. So it's a great occasion to witness, to just put that message. Now, when... when uh, when people talk about the LGBTQ things, they usually don't use the rainbow. But when it comes up, it's an occasion. I think a very simple thing when someone is seeing the rainbow, say, do you know what the rainbow really stands for? We can just ask that question. And most people say, well, it means uh, sexual diversity, right? No. Let me remind you what it says in Genesis 8 through 9. This is a promise that God will spare his people and bless the world. So I think we should be bold enough. It's a simple way. It's the same thing. The coronavirus is before us, right? People are saying, oh, I'm so worried. It's a great opportunity to say, well, you know what? I know the Creator. And the Creator says to me, don't be afraid of anything that just kills the body but can't kill the soul. Because my Creator not only is in charge of everything, but if I lose my body, I'm going to get a new one. He's, that's the resurrection. I don't have to be afraid. He tells me that every hair on my head is numbered. Every day of my life is in his book before there's one of them, that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father. I'm, we're secure. Do you know him? So when we hear these fears or we hear these messages, we can offer a simple opportunity. And I always think you start with a question. And if they give you permission, you go. You don't just jump in and say, well, you should need to know what it is. Then you become that pushy ogre. But you say, there's a, the, you say, do you know what the rainbow means? I don't care about it. Fine. When they talk about their fears, say, do you know we don't have to be afraid? Why? And give a reason for the hope that's in you. So I'm not lecturing on coronavirus tonight, but I'm going to say to you, again, it's the same message. It's, end, it's the end of the world. We're in trouble. No, it's not the end of the world. Let's be wise. Let's use proper precautions, but let's not be afraid. 
because we are secure in the hands of our Lord. We're not going to be, why would we panic? The day, you know, let me quote George Whitfield. What was his great line? I'm immortal till God calls me home. So are you. Isn't that wonderful? You're absolutely secure. And the Lord wants me tomorrow. I'm gone. There's nothing I can do to change it. Doesn't mean I'm stupid. I still look when I cross the road both ways. I don't swallow arsenic pills. But what I'm saying is, is that we serve the Lord. We are confident. So we don't have to be afraid. Because we fear the Lord, we have to fear nothing else. Isn't that wonderful? That's who we, this is the blessing of being a Christian with a sovereign God. Let's live boldly in light of His grace. Okay? Question? Thank you so much for being here. Your message tonight was very reassuring. and um, We know that we can trust in God. And um, I always think about um, that one scripture in the Bible, too, about... Uh, Talk about the last days and Jesus said that no one will know when that last day is that not even the angels in heaven will know and or the son of man so Jesus and the angels don't know when that day would be what are we worried about you know we you know thank God you know we have that have that security and I love your message thank you so okay. much because thank you for your kind words let me just say this about not knowing the hour, part of the Lord's wisdom is to keep us in the dark, so we'll keep looking to Him. We, we're to be busy. You know, I, I love the, the famous line when someone asks uh, Martin Luther, you know, if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow, what would you do today? He said, I'd plant a tree. He was a tree lover too. Uh, what he was saying is, is that I really don't know the Lord is coming tomorrow, so I'm going to keep planning for the future like I always do. And that's the way we live our lives. If the Lord chooses to come right now, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. What a great thing. If the Lord wants to call us home right now, what? well, then, Lord, we're coming home. This is great. But if the Lord has us here, let's be faithful where we're called and live with confidence. And so uh, these look like a lot of end-time events. But, you know, there have been many moments in history where people thought, it's got to happen now, and that's never happened. We, we can't set the date and the hour... You think he's not going to come. That's the hour he'll come. You can't know. He's, go, he's in charge. So live your life with gusto and confidence and with sobriety and wisdom. And don't live with fear except fear of the Lord. Honor the Lord. And then don't worry about the rest. Be wise. Be careful. But be bold. And when your neighbors are terrified, say, isn't it great that we have a God in heaven that's going to care for us? It's a great opportunity for Christians to shine. The world is in a panic mode. And we have peace that surpasses all understanding through him who loves us in prayer. So let's live that out. This is our privilege. Okay. There's another one. Okay. What, what did you say? <laughs> I can hear you. You're the teacher that used to say, Peter, stop playing back there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I could tell. I could, I've heard your voice before. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, what, what I will do, and if uh, Dr. Black will help me on this one, 
If you give me a couple weeks, I'll try to clean it up because after you've spoken on something, you know, you all have to improve it because it's never been spoken before. I said, oh, that wasn't right. That didn't work. I see things a little more clearly. I'd like to clean it up. And then I'll, if, if you all would like to share it, share it away. I'm willing to. My view has always been if you're going to preach on it, you need to own it. So I've, that's why I was hesitant for three years not to speak on this because I didn't know. Finally, I said it's, it's an issue. The church of God needs to hear about it. I think I can at least give a humble voice and I'm willing to stand with it and put it in print and let people hate me for it or criticize it or improve it. And again, please remember, I come at this with total humility. I'm not saying I have the final word. This is my first engagement with it. And I also want to be able to say, I am a tree hugger. I love hiking. I'm an outdoorsman. I love nature. I'm all about preserving the environment. But I'm all about doing it in a godly, biblical way with good stewardship. We are under the creation mandate. So let's go use our energy, but let's be wise. Yeah. Well, I think what we here's here's a, a good way to do it. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, there's a lot of criticisms that come against America because we are big polluters. The answer is that we're, we probably are the leaders in clean air and clean water right now on the planet. The, the real criticism is China and it's India and Indonesia. And I think we have a duty to say, why are you not being wise about what we're glad for all your uh, things you're doing, but you need to do them better. And we should be helping them to improve it. Because if my neighbor is dumping trash in his backyard, I might say to him, you know, you're, you're harming our neighborhood. Let's, can we do something to, to address this? So we have a duty to encourage those that are not ours under our care. So a radical libertarian indifference is less than neighborly. We're to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. So we had to say, listen, how can we help you, India, to do better? How can we help you, China, to do better? How can we in our community do this better? without demanding of you to give up your freedoms. If you're going to be contrarian, we have a right to say, we don't think that's right. Well, you know, And we have to work together. So we're active citizens, but we respect the rights of others. So freedom is important, but that doesn't mean to be silent either. Okay? Yeah. Anybody else? wanted to make a little comment. I've actually done a little bit of research on some of this, um, uh, uh, like the taxes that's associated with, or proposed taxes that's associated with global warming. But a lot of times uh, what the root of that really is, is um, uh, the businessmen trying to make money off of it, and they want to use taxpayer money to fund their operations, specifically uh, the International Monetary Fund, the banking system, they like this idea of sus sustainable development. They like the idea of being able to um, give loans and know that they will, uh, that there is collateral for it and that they can, that they will uh, get their interest and get their money back, right, when they give out loans, that they'll be able to make money on it. So. There's this big ruse in the West to take, they want to build, um, build out uh, infrastructure in the southern hemispheres in South America and Africa. And so where are they going to get the collateral to build that out infrastructure? They don't have the money, so they're going to take it from Western nations by taxing this. So they have to make this big hysteria 
uh, oh, there's this global warming. We've got to raise taxes so everybody can, you know, contribute to con get control of this issue. And it's really okay. just a lawyer's trick. Okay. Let me let me stop you for a moment. Is, is there a question in your comment? So, so have, have you done any research on that, or do you know anything about no. that? Okay. Part so here's what I would say. You're you're way beyond my my knowledge base. I, I'm not. In, I, I have just gut feelings, and I don't want to share those publicly because they're they're very untutored. And uns so long ago, I learned uh, one of the wisest things you can say is I don't know, and I, I probably should say that right now. But I would say this: that we all know that uh, capitalism is a, a powerful system that has evils built into it, and also really good things. And if I can say bluntly, socialism would be phenomenal if it could be done in a godly way, but. There's abuse built into that. You have to kill rich people to get their money. And so all systems of economics have greed one way or another. I don't care what system. It's just part of it. So what is a just way to deal with it? The best way that we've known is check and balance. It's called the market system where, you know, competition breeds responsibility in other people because you can't gouge people if you have to deal with it. You know, that creates a fair market. And international issues have the same thing. So I... I tend to like the idea of a, of a fair market where a neighbor must work with a neighbor to bless other people. So that idea of a, of a market system. Taxes are biblical. Romans 13 tell us that we're to pay taxes. So the question is, when do taxes become exorbitant? When, they, when do they become unjust? That's a very important question. And we know our Supreme Courts have said through the years uh, that power to tax is the power to destroy. So if you keep raising taxes, you can force people out of your community. You can take, make them do things they don't want to do and all that. So we should care about it, which means we should be good citizens when we deal with these things. How it works out on the international uh, area, I'm not smart enough to say, so I won't say it. But I would say we have to pay taxes, but they can be unjust. Uh, we, we do want to see, a, I think, a good market where because it creates healthy competition. And we want to see third world countries, we want to see them thrive. That's important. It's, we're loving our neighbors. If we have health benefits that we have because of our culture, we should share it with them. But who is trying to abuse the system and, and get rich in an, in an inappropriate way? Well, there should be accountability for that. So, and I, and, but I don't know how to put all that together. So there are principles I can see, but I don't have the wisdom to address it. Yeah. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, well, well let, let's test what, what you just said. Jesus was Jewish. He was open and loving. He didn't love everybody uh, that, for what they were doing. He also was very critical. You know, the money changers' tables, he overturned them. He saw that as an abuse of business. He did have a critique. Uh, but I think what's important is that one of the most important passages on economics that Jesus teaches is parable about the man who goes to get the workers at the beginning of the day, later in the day, middle of the day, and at the very end of the day, and at the last hour, and they all get paid the same thing. Not on a social principle, but on a capitalist principle. It was the owner who had a right to say, and they said, you can't, you, you, we worked all day in the heat of the day, and you paid us with that guy who worked only for the last 15 minutes. It's not fair. 
And, and the answer was, well, don't I have a right to do with what's mine? That's capitalism. Don't I have a right to pay my employees as I determine? That's Jesus' Jesus was a, a capitalist, but he was a compassionate capitalist. That's Marvin Olasky's words that George W. Bush helped to publicize in his system. What, what keeps capitalism from being evil is that you love your neighbor and say, you know, there is a fair wage. I need to think about it. James will talk about that. Your rich people have people working in the fields and you're not paying them what they're worth. On the other hand, poor people can be very unjust too. They can create a lot of harm toward people who have a right to their property. So socialism, in my opinion, is destroyed if you properly understand uh, the uh, Eighth Commandment that says, Thou shalt not steal. That means you shall preserve your neighbor's property. The right to private property is a moral law of God. And when it is taken unjustly by unjust taxes, by some form of uh, uh, strange business practices that force people from that, that's not right. So I would argue that Jesus was a, a biblically compassionate-minded believer in private property because the Ten Commandments is what he came to establish. And the Eighth Commandment, Destroy socialism. I, you can't be a, a thoroughgoing socialist and be a Christian. I'm, I'll be honest with you. It's unbiblical. Because you're saying there's no private property, and the Eighth Commandment says stealing is wrong. That means you own something. And if every negative commandment is to be put in its positive form, I mean preserve property, which means, well, that's not my property. No, but I should love my neighbor, make sure what he has. I should take good care of what he has. So I would have to disagree. Jewish, loving neighbor, socialist, I'm sorry, no, not so. Okay, yeah, okay. Are we done? Okay, well, let's uh, ask uh, Jay to close us in prayer and we'll wrap it up, okay?